exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Good morning. Today we will be exploring Psalm 4 and going over it generally. I hope everyone has had a good start to the morning, but if not, I hope that that will change as we go over God's word together and hear what he says in it. If you've turned to Psalm 4, read along with me. If not, then listen carefully to the word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's open the message this morning with prayer. Father God, as we explore your word, as we come to it, we pray that you would be the one that we learn more about today. Father, that you would remove any vestiges of myself and only that you would preach your straight truth through this crooked stick, Father. We pray that we would be blessed by the hearing of your word and that we would be motivated to do it in our own lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, before we begin, the purpose of today's message isn't to fully explore every expression, every intricate word, or every single thought. Today, I hope to simply give you the general message of Psalm 4 and a frame for and a framework for you to study this word more deeply as you consider it today. That being said, we are going to go pretty deep into Psalm 4. Um, and today, as we explore this word and what it says to us, we're going to see six things generally. First, that God alone hears and answers prayer. Two, that God is the source of our relief. Three, that godliness brings rejection. Four, that seeking things other than God is worthless. Five, that a right relationship with God requires a right heart. And six, that God alone brings true peace. Now that's a lot of points, but that's because this psalm has a lot in it. A lot more than we could go over in the 30 minutes we have for this sermon. So bear with me and see how deep just a single chapter can be. From the beginning in verse 1, it's clear that David has great faith in the Lord. He calls God the God of his righteousness, meaning the source of it. From the beginning, he opens with something called the doctrine of justification. And we're not going to do a deep dive on that today, but it's clear from the grammar in Hebrew that God is being given the credit for being the source of David's righteousness. This is important to remember because the theme of God being the source of our justification or the one who gives us righteousness is all throughout the is all throughout the Bible and it's something David is assuming when he's writing this passage. It's context we have to understand is already in here when we're reading this for ourselves. Continuing along the verse, David says the Lord gives relief when he is in distress. Again, in the Hebrew, David says the Lord leads David from a pressing place to an open place. Now in English, the word picture there is pretty clear. David's pressed. He's in a tight place and God brings him to a place of openness and freedom. 
Just hearing about that, I think of my claustrophobia and the relief I would feel being taken from that pressing place and being deposited somewhere where I'm open and free once again. When I discovered this word picture in the literal language, I had the opportunity shortly after to talk to several of my friends and acquaintances, acquaintances who spoke different languages. I asked them if their languages had similar ways of expressing distress. My friends all responded yes. So in English, in Hebrew, in Spanish, in Latvian, in Russian, and in French, you can communicate distress by painting this same claustrophobic word picture. This physical feeling of being pressed that many of us can remember when stressed or anxious or in, an, or in a hard spot is an emotion that goes beyond any one language. All major languages find a way to communicate it similarly. I found it to be an interesting piece of information that helps me to almost experience the emotions that David is describing. I love that scripture is written in such a way that we can still imagine and empathize the way that the scripture writers are explaining their emotions to us. We can feel them if we just take a moment to think about it. However, beyond the language, the principle here is that David is recognizing that God is the one specifically who brings relief and deliverance from troubles and hardship in his life. And it's the same for us. Again, God alone brings peace. We also see that when God hears David's prayer, it is an act of graciousness by our loving Father. Again, this God who is our justification, the one who gives us righteousness, is approachable to David and to us not, uh, because he chooses to be. Not through our effort, not through our holiness, not because we're bishops or priests or any special one thing, but only because of God's kindness and God's graciousness. And not only does David show that he knows God will hear his prayer, in verse 3, David has confidence enough in his relationship with God and knows enough about God to ask God to answer his prayer. And this is significant for several reasons. One is God's holiness. This is another thing, like justification, that David is assuming when he's writing this. David himself would experience a close and painful encounter with the holiness of God that we're about to go over. But before we do this, we must know that God's holiness is sacred. That's something we need to consider because very few things are considered sacred in our culture today. And we have a very poor understanding of what sacredness is. Divorces are incredibly high. Adultery is incredibly high. Abstinence before marriage is practically non-existent in the culture. And that's just one of the many things in which the culture says, there is nothing sacred, there is nothing to be honored, do what you want. God's holiness is sacred, it cannot be trespassed upon. And if we can't accept that, then we can't even begin to understand it. In the Old Testament, God's holiness was unapproachable. And because of that perfection, sin could not be in its presence. For this reason, in 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 and 7, Uzzah is killed by God for trying to touch the Ark of the Covenant, which at the time housed the presence of God among Israel. Uzzah was killed for his ignorance and irreverence to the holiness of God. What was the irreverence he died for? 1 Chronicles 13, verse 10 says it was because Uzzah reached out to touch the Ark of the Lord to stop it from hitting the ground. 
That seems a bit extreme that God would kill a man who is trying to protect the cleanliness of his dwelling place from hitting dirt. Yet that view doesn't respect the reality of our condition. Again, God killed Uzzah not because he touched the ark, but because he was going to. Before his hand could touch the Lord's dwelling place, he was killed. Why? Because God is holy. Uzzah was a sinful man and God cannot tolerate being in the presence of sin. A precedent for this is found in the law of Moses, which said that if something unclean touched you or you touched something unclean, it would turn you from clean to unclean. God could not tolerate a man touching his dwelling place because God cannot be touched by sin. For God to become unclean isn't worth considering. It can't happen. He would no longer be God. Anything inconsistent with the nature or character of God has to be annihilated in his presence. Otherwise, he would not be perfectly holy. The dirt and mud that the ark would have fallen upon wasn't sinful, but Uzzah was. The Lord's ark can be dirty, but it cannot be unclean. David witnessed this. Uzzah was one of David's men. A real man David cared about who God killed. 2 Samuel 6 verses 8 through 10 says, David was angry because the Lord attacked Uzzah. So he called that place Perez Uzzah, which remains its name to this very day. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How will the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So David was no longer willing to bring the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. David left it in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. David hurt here. Thinking about people I've served God with, my friends and my family, I don't think I'd initially react any better, any different. But we must respect what it means to serve a holy God and what it means for a holy God to say and do something. But it doesn't end there. In the following verses, David hears God blesses Obed-Edom for having the ark, and David joyfully retrieves the ark and brings it to Jerusalem. Uzzah is still dead, but David more deeply understands now what it means for Jerusalem to have the presence of God in it, and he rejoices for it. May God humble us enough to appreciate and love his holiness in our lives like David when we lose something because of it. Knowing this context, coming back to Psalm 4, this makes the fact that the Lord hears David's prayer all the more profound. Since a truly holy God requires that we die, that he wouldn't be ruined by us in our sinfulness and corruption, yet he makes himself approachable enough to us that we can speak to him. We can speak to this holy God. Going into verse 2, we see a transition. As God's holiness is infinite and high above our understanding, so our sin is corrupt and disgusting and so far removed from, from him that it is impossible to even compare them. It can be easy to forget how terrible our sin is. We live in a sinful and corrupt world, and we're frequently exposed to sin in all forms all the time. We see it so often that it's easy to become numb to it. Yet scripture in several passages paints at times gruesome, disgusting, and painful, vivid descriptions of what sin and idolatry is like to God. The most grotesque adultery, the most painful life and death imaginable, these things are used to describe sin. 
God is holy, and as high as his holiness is, so equally low down is sin. I bring this up because it's important to understand the weight and reality of sin and holiness to properly understand verse 2 and another reason why it's so significant that God hears David's prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Verse 2. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. Though David is a sinner, and we'll get back to that later, he is a follower of God. And the first part of this verse reveals that David has faced ridicule and opposition from people who oppose God, and by extension, David who serves God. David's honor, all the things that he does for godliness, his righteous deeds, and all the acclaim his God receives for these things are for nothing to the sons of man, because to them, those things of God are considered shameful. For us, we see our values turned out to the street as the wider culture rejects our beliefs, and in some cases even tries to regulate us privately exercising what we believe. So in a sense, we can mourn with David that the very beliefs that give us life have also been turned into objects of scorn. That's point three, godliness brings rejection. Yet we must also be humble enough to see ourselves as one of the opponents of David, God's appointed. As we think about that, how often do we chase our own wants, our desires and idols? How often are we the sons of man that David describes? What is translated here as vain words in verse 2 is more literally translated as emptiness or meaninglessness, and lies is literally deception. Why would someone chase emptiness and deception? I'm glad you asked. Those things are summed up in the idea of idolatry. And there's more different kinds of idols than there are stars in the sky. For a personal example, last month I decided I would cut down on the amount of food I ate. I set a health and fitness goal for myself that I felt was consistent with the work and ministry I want to do this summer and with my personal convictions of beating my body and bringing it under submission like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. So the next day for lunch, I grabbed a plate of salad while the school served one of my favorite lunches for the last time this year, stromboli. <laughs> like a calzone, but better. Anyway, my desire to give up on my new health conviction was immediate and very powerful. And I spent the entire lunch feeling miserable, smelling this and seeing people enjoying this with the marinara sauce and the cheese. Anyway. I left as soon as I was done eating, and I speed eat that. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I returned to my room, and I struggled with missing out on that food for the next hour. I, I really, it brought me down. I just, and through that process, I discovered that love of food is a stronghold of sin in my life that I never noticed until I decided to change to conform more to what the Bible said instead of what I naturally wanted. And the principle here is many things we hold as idols can be hidden from our minds and often are due to habits that we never think through or change and how easy it is to live with sin and never notice it. But what is an idol? Let's start with what it does and go from there. Now, what does an idol do? An idol does absolutely nothing. 
But in the same way that the people of Israel were punished for worshiping carved figures of wood and stone, we may find ourselves getting disciplined by God because of the empty, meaningless things we find ourselves chasing after. Instead of pursuing that which is commendable and honorable to God like David did, we pursue worthless things. And it would be enough if idols were simply nothingness and worthless, yet they aren't just a waste of time. Idols aren't neutral or dead things, even though in and of themselves they are, because they represent something about us. They also show in themselves the lies that we act on and believe. Idols are liars. For example, we find ourselves tempted to believe that money will buy us security, power will bring control, quiet will bring peace, and adultery, lust, food, and any number of other desires we consume will satisfy the God-sized hole for contentment and satisfaction in our hearts. The reality is it won't and it never will. Often we worship these worthless things that will mean nothing when our lives are over because we believe the lies that these things tell us. But that's still not all. Not only are we led around by the nose, not only are we lied to, not only are we wasting our time, we sin for these things. We lust for things we want but don't have. We lie to people to get something that we believe will satisfy us, even if for only a moment. And we hurt and we hate and we steal for what? For things that will mean nothing to anyone the moment our bodies turn cold. That's the weight behind verse four. Uh, sorry, point four. Anything other than God is worthless. With this in mind, it's easy to see my relationship with food really was an idol. And sometimes I still treat it like one. I've sinned many times in my thoughts and treated my friends poorly when my desire to eat comes on me. I wanted my idol so badly I was willing to sin for it. And I have. That's what an idol does. It promises things it doesn't give, it contributes nothing, and it leads us to sin. Going on to verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Again, God alone hears and answers prayer. David again exhibits total confidence that God will hear him. But who are the godly? And what does it mean that God sets them apart for himself? And I want that question in your mind as we go through the rest of Psalm 4, because 1 Timothy 4.8 teaches that those who are godly are that way because they labor in godliness with the promise of hope in the next life. That is the hope of the godly. Those who have the promise of eternal life for God, who have been set apart by God himself. Are you one of the godly? And are you sure? Now, continuing on, verse 4 starts confusingly, considering this line of thought so far. Be angry and do not sin. Now, for a moment, weren't we talking about God and man, godliness and sin? What is anger for? And isn't anger wrong itself? And how is it related to sin? Now, as an aside, different translations have different ideas of this verse. And where this Hebrew word occurs elsewhere in Scripture... It refers either to trembling in anger or trembling in fear. In Ephesians 4, like we went over before the call to worship, Paul quotes this verse and applies it to teaching on anger, how anger itself is not sinful, yet it is easy to sin in anger. 
Yet if it means to tremble in fear, it easily fits with the following line and verse. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Because the fear of God is a regular theme in scripture and often goes along with calls to repentance like this and calls to trust in God like this. So which is it? To be honest with you, I don't know. Both things I've said that it teaches anger is not sin and that we should fear God and not sin out of reverence for him appear elsewhere in scripture. So while I won't be authoritative on which one is taught here, we're getting two truths of scripture for the price of one. But it's an opportunity for us to study it deeper for ourselves as well. Moving along into the, into the next verse, what is being pondered in bed in silence? What's referred to there is deep meditative thought in silence. How can anyone examine something or think deeply without this? But what are we thinking on? To tremble and sin not. Now, broadly, we may say it teaches about the importance of deep thought in the life of a believer. And I believe we should think through our faith. But I also think this passage is more intentionally referring to thinking about the relationship between either anger and sin or between the fear of God and sin, again, depending on how you interpret verse 4. Both are profitable. Continuing along, right sacrifices. Well, aren't all sacrifices right? What's right about them? Well, wrong sacrifices are throughout prophecy. Hosea 6.6 teaches God would rather mercy than sacrifice. A sacrifice offered with the wrong heart means nothing to God. 1 Samuel 15.22 shows God always cared first for the heart of his people before sacrifice. We must be very careful that the service we offer God today has the right heart as well. And that's point five. Finally, put your trust in God. 1 Samuel 15.22 again. But how can we trust God? What does it mean to put trust in him? It means to have faith. Because the definition of faith is to put your trust in something. So what kind of trust, what kind of faith are we putting in God? Well, the word goes on. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. There are many looking for answers. Many who seek peace and safety in this life. Who look for things they cannot find. Again, in idols, a peace that cannot come from lack of war, from quiet stillness, from meditation, from prosperity, or from health or family. But these many, in verse 6, trust God. They are asking for the light of his face. They believe his attention and his blessing is the only thing that matters. That he alone is good, that he alone satisfies. This is the faith we're looking at. Verse 7 and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. For every one of us, our idols and the sins we do to pursue them make us violators of God's law. And that means God cannot tolerate our presence before him unless something changes. God will not give us that peace with him and cannot let us into a relationship with him as we are. Sin Holiness. So we need something or someone to make a way. David had several idols during his life as well, yet he continued to face God's discipline well. He turned back to God each time, which is part of why he has the confidence to declare himself one of the godly that the Lord sets apart to himself in verse 3. David was a firm believer and follower of God, and though he sinned many, many times, 
the Lord covered it. At that time, temporarily through the sacrifices of the law, but for us now, we are, we are covered by trusting in Christ's sacrifice. As I mentioned previously, David was, at that time, the appointed king God put over Israel, a man after God's own heart and a servant that the Lord blessed again and again. As we saw, this kingly figure in Scripture calls the, son of men, the sons of men to stop following empty and deceitful things, and in the following verses 3 to 5, to do what is right and put their trust in God. This is interesting because it parallels many of the things that Jesus did in his time among us on earth. Jesus called Israel to repent and trust in God, to stop following pointless things, to love and do what is right, and to trust in himself as the appointed Messiah of God. By his blood, Christ also has a right to the throne of David. He is the king of the Jews, and he came not to do his will but the Father's. And as such, he is an appointed servant like David. Yet David called men to follow the law, to offer right sacrifices. But Christ fulfilled the law and became the final atoning sacrifice for us on the cross to wipe out our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what remains then? Simply to trust in God. As Christ is also God and our Savior and the final and greatest appointed king of Israel, he mirrors David's call to trust God with a greater call, to trust in himself to take away our sins. For Jesus said, no one can come to the Father except through me. This is because Christ's power as God and his sacrifice for us on the cross. The relief David expects back in verse 1, Jesus didn't receive. Why? Jesus never sinned, so there was no reason for God to withhold, to withhold relief for Jesus' suffering. He didn't receive relief because Jesus took our sin upon him. And that holiness of God that led to us as death, it met its full requirement of justice in Jesus Christ. A good song called In Christ Alone puts it this way. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There is no other way. To any here who have not trusted in this superior Savior, I implore you to trust in him today for salvation, to put off the passing things of this life for a superior promise of the next, to enter into a relationship with God and experience a peace and enter into a rest nothing else in this world can give you. The only way to God is through Christ, and the only way to trust in Christ is to confess, meaning to admit that you personally are a sinner whose sin is wrong, whose sin justly leaves you in a totally broken relationship with a holy God who loves you. Then to repent, which means to turn away from sin, to go into a new direction, to give up sin, which you once pursued, and finally to believe, to believe in Christ's death that pays the penalty of our sin, to believe in his resurrection that gives him power over death and hell, and to believe he is the one and only Son of God who is the one and only way to God and eternal life. If you've done that, the scriptures say, by his wounds we have been healed. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. If you have come to believe in the name of Jesus alone for salvation, if you believe it already, Christ says in John 10, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. So if you believe in Christ, we have been made godly. We have been made righteous. We can have the same confidence David expresses in verse 3, that God has set us apart for himself. This holy God can have a restored relationship with us. We no longer have the barrier like Uzzah. We can have the peace that nothing else can give us, like in verses 7 and 8. We have an everlasting relationship with Christ. As we go out into another week, I'd encourage you to remember this truth in God's word in Philippians 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And with this confidence we have born of our relationship with God, I want you to go out this week and do this. First, I want you to pray that God, pray to God with confidence and faith in your relationship with him, given to you by the work of Christ. I want you to surrender something you've been trying to control and ask God for peace instead of trying to find it somewhere else. I want you to proclaim the gospel to one person meaningfully with whatever capacity the Lord has given to you. And I want you to pray for this opportunity with that same confidence. And finally, I want you to examine your life and habits and search through the power of prayer with the influence of the Holy Spirit inside of you to examine and see if there is an idol coming between you and God somewhere in your life. Because recognizing evil is the first step to dealing with it. Now, I have every confidence that God can and will work in your life and your heart if you surrender and pursue him and turn to him alone for your hope and your peace. In closing, that being said, for anyone else unsure about this or about their personal relationship with Christ, I'd ask you, please come after the service and speak with me or one of the other interns. Because as the scriptures say, today is the day of salvation. And listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts. Let us close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your holiness. Lord, that covers us who believe. Father, if anyone does not have a right relationship with you, we pray that that understanding of the weight of holiness and sin, Lord, would drive them to that relationship with you that truly gives peace. And Father, we pray for those of us who have a relationship with you, that we would cling to your peace through the storms of life, that we would cling to your peace as we go out and serve you, and that we would trust in your promises and have the confidence to pray to you with a right heart and to expect an answer like David. I pray that you would keep us safe and strengthen us, strengthen our hands for the task this coming week, convict us and humble us so that we would do your will out of love and reverence, understanding who you are and what it means for you to bring us into a relationship with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.